All right, welcome everyone. Welcome to episode 80. 80 episodes. That is crazy. 80 is a lot a lot of episodes. I feel like so long story short, I think I'll just talk about this now. I was applying for the Australian Podcast Awards and you have to like submit this audio file of, you know, the best bits of your episodes. And I'm like, what can't I have to go through at the time? I'm like 75 hours worth of footage. So as you can imagine, I didn't. And my application is probably average at best. But anyway, I'll keep you tuned on how that goes. Also, I am going to be hitting you guys up when the People's Choice Awards um, uh, category opens up because I am going to need all the support I can get if I want to place anywhere in that list of um, people's favourite podcasts. Anyway, I'll keep you updated. So today what I'm talking about is dopamine. I'm talking about dopamine as obviously the neurochemical, neuromodulator, neurotransmitter that it is. I'm going to talk about quite a bit of it. I'm going to talk about addiction and motivation and also how dopamine plays into behavioral addiction. But I really want to talk about how it plays into chemical addiction. I have had so many questions about people asking me to do, you know, to talk about different kinds of addictions like alcoholism, of course, drug abuse, even prescription drug abuse, so legal and illegal, all that kind of stuff I want to be talking about. Then I am going to be talking about ways to increase your levels of dopamine in a healthy positive way where it's going to impact you positively. I'm going to be talking about things that deplete your dopamine and why you might feel flat and super unmotivated. This is the perfect podcast where I can talk about motivation and it be a helpful way of talking about motivation. Because as you guys know, I always say I don't like to say that you should ever rely on motivation because it is this kind of thing that, you know, you know, ebbs and flows and it's like fleeting and it comes into your life. But dopamine is literally the motivation neurotransmitter. If you ever feel motivated, that is dopamine. So I'm going to talk about ways that you can actually, you know, enhance the levels of dopamine, what's a healthy way, what's an unhealthy way. I go into all that shit. So I'm pretty excited. Um, I have written down so many dot points. I'm hoping that I stay focused. But really my aim is to bring you the science of it, but as much as possible incorporated into actionable things within your day that's digestible for everybody, Okay. Love that so much. Okay, quickly, weekly, quickly, weekly update. Um, I'm not going to lie. I think I'm going to be really transparent with you guys and say that I have struggled to, to sit down and write this book. I don't know what has happened, but in the last few days, I have just not, not been able to, to kind of get in the zone as easily as I was able to with my last book. Um, So what I've decided to do, I'm taking a week off writing it. I also have a lot of things going on in other arenas of my life. So I do have a few like balls in the air that I'm kind of juggling. So I've decided I'm going to take a week off writing the book and I'm going to approach it with kind of fresh mind, fresh eyes. I think I would end up resisting it more and resenting it more if I try and sit through this like phase. Yes, it means that I'm cutting out an entire week of writing time and the deadline is encroaching closer and closer. But I think I would rather work harder while I'm feeling like calm and good about it than like working on it right now when I feel like it's kind of stressing me out. So I've just put it aside for now. My publisher would probably not want to hear that, but it is what it is. And I do have to listen to myself first and foremost. So that is what I'm doing. Secondly, if you, if any of you guys are in Sydney, we are supposed to be getting out of lockdown like sooner than expected. It's going to be like on the 11th instead of the 18th. Fingers crossed. I hope. Let's hope that doesn't change. So yeah, I'm just going on a rampage with Liv 
and Tyrone and everyone else trying to just like book places. So catch me everywhere but in my apartment after the 11th. I'm very, very excited, which kind of means that I probably should be working on the book even more so prior to this date so I can factor in for this socialising time. But I actually think, having said that, that I'm going to work even better and more efficiently when I've got my social life back. I, If you guys listened to my last episode with Katie Williams, I actually, when I have more things, A, to look forward to socially and just more things, you know, within my day that break up my day, I am way, way more efficient with my time. I just get shit done. The reward is quite exciting. This is kind of plays into this dopamine thing that we're talking about today. But like the excitement of going out or the excitement of having a dinner or a lunch, that fuels me to do a whole lot more throughout my day. So having said that, it's probably a better time to start writing. To be dead honest, I really, really have like questioned why I chose to write a book during lockdown because that's like the time that I'm least creative. So it takes like more effort. So I think that these juices are going to flow and I'll just get most of that book done in the final like two, three weeks of October. Um, My ideal time to write is actually like sitting at a cafe or just being around people and strangers and like the busyness of just life and having humans exist around me instead of being cooped up in an apartment, if that makes sense. So that's that. Also, international flights, it looks like it's actually happening, which means that I'll be able to go and see my sister and her team um, racing on the bobsled in, you know, well, in Europe and in the Winter Olympics. If they qualify for the Winter Olympics, I will need to be there. So like I said, I will somehow, I don't care how, I will get there. So it looks like it's taking shape. I'm very excited. Follow me on this journey to the Winter Olympics as a spectator. I think it's going to be a wild, wild ride. Okay, let's get into the topic of today. I was going to start a segment, a new segment called Alexis's Pet Hates, which I already love the concept of. I've thought about it for a long time and I had a really, really good pet hate, but I've forgotten what that pet hate is. So I will have to start at another time or at the end of the episode. No fun brain facts today because pretty much the whole thing is a brain fact. It's quite science heavy. So let's dive straight into the topic of today, which is dopamine. Okay, so uh, the first thing that I'm going to be talking about is the role that dopamine plays in addiction because something that's important to note is anything that has got to do with being addicted to something and a chemical addiction or any kind of addiction involves dopamine, okay? It's just, that's just how it is. Dopamine is involved in every kind of addiction possible. However, having said that, there are drugs that people take that doesn't kind of interfere with these dopamine pathways as such and therefore they are not addictive as far as what you would consider an addiction to be from a neuroscience perspective. I think a lot of people think that certain things are a chemical addiction when in reality if you look at how the brain responds to it it's either more a behavioral addiction where you're using a chemical but you're not getting the actual you know intense intense cycles of what's going on with within those dopamine pathways with the release and with the blocking of the reuptake and things like that for example um i think a lot of people think that they're addicted to coffee but a lot of that could come down to you know more so a behavioral addiction and this concept of feeling that you need that coffee but as far as what does that substance on a chemical level do to your brain, you absolutely cannot compare that to a chemical that would totally hijack your rewards pathways, such as something like a methamphetamine, which I'm going to go into, which and that that methamphetamines are the most aggressive form of a chemical addiction in how they perform in the brain and how they can completely hijack, you know, what you do. 
So before I go into dopamine in particular and its role in that, I thought I this would be a good time to quickly talk about the difference between a chemical addiction and a behavioural addiction. Um, sometimes behavioural addictions are referred to as process addictions as well. The first thing you want to think about is that there is a difference between something being like your vice that you're really that you crave and that you're tempted to have versus an actual addiction. Okay, an addiction impairs your voluntary control. Okay, so we have to understand that that's the difference between addiction and something that you just really want to do. And there's also a difference between kind of a compulsion in behavioral addictions versus like an actual cannot control chemical addiction okay normally with and the other difference here that you got to think about is normally with a behavioral addiction you're just doing something in excess that when done in regulated amounts it's not detrimental to your health so for example um, a shopping addiction yes that's an addiction but you're doing something that if you were to strip it back most people go shopping, right? Same as, you know, having sex. Most people have sex, but a sex addict just does it in excess, okay? So we see it with so many things, with the use of social media, we see it with eating. This kind of behavioral addiction crops up in a lot of areas. But if you look at most, not all, but most behavioral addictions is just something that if you were to do a little bit of it, it would be fine. Even gambling, okay? Like, Gambling is a little bit different because, yes, you can gamble every once in a while. Like my grandmother used to go into the RSL on occasion and put a coin in the pokies. I think everyone, okay, we can all do that. But I think gambling is different in a way because it is literally designed. Literally, it's psychologically like manufactured to keep you there longer and longer. It knows exactly what your triggers are. It knows what you want. It knows what's going to keep you coming back for more. So it's really designed to reel you in and keep you there longer. Also, when you look at gambling as an addiction, it it really does take over people's lives. So it's not to say that a behavioral addiction is, you know, oh, it's nothing compared to a chemical addiction, not at all. Behavioral addictions can absolutely take over your life, but there is definitely a difference. And when I start to explain certain things about chemical addictions, you're going to realize that they are two separate things as far as overcoming the addictions and um, as far as withdrawals and things like that as well. So the reason why chemical addictions are so intense is because you're literally putting chemicals into your brain that change the release patterns of dopamine. They, I'll go into it in a sec, but it kind of either blocks the reuptake or increases the amount that's being released of dopamine. So you're changing the actual levels of this neurotransmitter. And then that neurotransmitter, depending on in dopamine, what I'm talking about, depending on the area of the brain, it's going to have a different mechanism of action, okay? So if you're looking at the reward circuit in the brain, if you have too much of a drug that works on these rewards pathways like a co- like cocaine for example or a, an amphetamine of any sort then not only do you get super obviously addicted to something but it really shatters your impulse control as well it shatters you know your ability to have autonomy over your own decisions in your life you know a drug addict what they prioritize changes completely altogether it literally hijacks your rewards pathway and it makes you interpret what's important in a very, very weird and abstract way and you will do whatever it takes to get that next hit of the drug. So there's this kind of ethical dilemma when it comes to in psychiatry as well, when it comes to and in law, when you look at drug 
addicts, when they do something or do something terrible, whatever, it's like that blurred line of where does the responsibility start and where does it end? Because when you're on, and I'm not talking about just getting drunk and fucking king hitting someone, you're a fucking dickhead. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people that have like fully addicted on like meth, okay? It gets really difficult because these people often find themselves in a situation where they don't have the resources to get help in the first place and then they do things in their life that end up being really detrimental and they get to a place where they, they find it really hard to reverse it and turn things around for themselves, okay? And it's really easy to turn around from someone who's been in a position in their life where they've been, for lack of a better word, privileged and loved and cared for to turn around and say someone who's a drug addict and it's quite easy to turn around and judge that person but you must understand that in order to even start getting into a pattern of abusing drugs certain things have had to be going on in your life as well okay so that's what I talk about when you talk about where's the responsibility and control because you might yes make that choice to have the drug in the first place um, but then once you become addicted then you kind of no longer have that impulse control there. It's not possible. And what you value as a priority in your life is warped. And it's not what if you didn't have the drugs in your system and if you weren't going through withdrawals and if you didn't need them, then you're, you would realize that that hierarchy of priorities is completely skewed, okay? So when someone says, oh, I'm addicted to social media – would you choose social media over feeding your children? No, you wouldn't. So there you understand the severity of something like a methamphetamine addiction versus I'm addicted to Instagram, okay? They're quite different. And it's not to say, look, don't get me wrong. I'm, this is why I'm saying why it's a blurred line and why it's ethically quite difficult. I'm not saying that you absolutely should let people go off scot-free if they've committed a crime because they're on meth. Not at all. But what I am saying that I think there, there are problems within the system that could always be improved. There's always room for improvement. And Having said that, if someone's gone and like robbed a servo at gunpoint because they were high on meth and they needed the drug, I'm not saying, oh, the poor thing, they were on drug, don't. Yes, that person is responsible for having done that and yes, you need to remove them from society temporarily while they rehabilitate because they are a danger to society, I understand that. But to just punish somebody and not offer rehabilitation I think is a problem and I think that happens a lot in not just this country, around the world, okay? So if we really want to fix the problem, we have to spend more time and energy in – honestly, it starts from like a very young age, but it's this idea of like helping people, genuinely rehabilitating people, not just to get clean but to integrate into society. A lot of the time people don't feel that they can just integrate back into society once they get released from – prison or from whatever so that's why they go back to their old ways so it's a terrible cycle that keeps happening and I think that a lot of these people that find themselves in these situations were born into a bad bad situation okay so I don't think it's fair to just you know think oh it's your problem it's your responsibility that's your problem when what if these problems were starting when that person was a child you know everyone cares for a poor innocent child but the moment they're an adult they're like oh it's your problem it's your problem it's your problem I think that there needs to be a bit more understanding um, and I think that a lot still needs to be done I feel like it's just such a deep topic and I can't really delve much further into it because it's such a gray area but that's pretty much what yeah kind of where my opinions are around that also when it comes to being an addict, everyone responds differently to drugs. You might meet people that can literally recreationally do meth casually at a party and then not do it again, okay? That's possible. 
Meth, however, or amphetamines, a lot of a lot of drugs. I'm using meth because that's kind of one of the most addictive and extreme ones. But you know, everyone responds differently, and some people might get really addicted really quickly, and others won't. Okay, it's it comes down to a lot of things. It it is genetic. It is also how you were raised. If you guys went and listened to my attachment theory podcast, highly recommend you go listen to that. I talk about you know, how different areas of the brain get strengthened versus how you were raised, okay? So if you've got uh, secure attachment, you've got a lot of activity between your prefrontal cortex, which is reasoning, executive thinking, you know, self-monitoring, self-control, predicting future, you know, consequences of your actions, all of that. If you were raised, you know, in a secure attachment, you've got a really healthy connection between your emotional and your, you know, forward executive thinking part of the brain. If you were someone that was raised in disorg- in a disorganized attachment, you might have some sort of a trauma here and you're really emotionally reactive and people that don't have much control over their prefrontal cortex or they don't have much connectivity between the prefrontal cortex and their limbic system, which is all emotion, means that they are more likely to be driven by not only emotion, but also impulse. So that explains why someone might be just more wired from birth to become an addict based on, yes, genetics, but also based on how they were raised in the first few years of their life into teenagehood, okay? So there are definitely people who are born in a disadvantaged way when it comes to addiction. Now, quickly, I just want to touch on a term called a functioning addict. That's not a fucking thing. There's no such thing. You either are addicted or you are not addicted, okay? If you are an addict, it means you don't have control over your behaviors. Someone who considers themselves a functioning addict has just happened to think that they are in control of their circumstances at all times just because nothing's really put a spanner in the works in their life and it's just kind of rolled. But if something was to get in their way, and they still, let's say that they were, you know, out somewhere and they realized they had run out of wine and they're like, wow, I've never run out of wine before. And they've always thought they were, you know, they consider themselves a functioning addict. If they were able to be like, you know what, I can just have one night without wine, it's fine. And if they can have that night without wine and not overthink it, not think about it too much, they're probably okay. If that person then went on a fucking rampage to hunt down a bottle of wine, no matter what the cost, that's not, you're not a functioning addict. You have lost control. You can't just say, I'm not going to do it for one night. Okay. That you, a functioning addict is someone who's not functioning, but just hides it. Okay, so let's go into a little bit of like cellular shit here. Okay, so dopamine. We're talking about dopamine in particular. What I'm focusing on is, of course, the rewards pathway addiction, but also motivation, drive, you know, general happiness, that kind of energy that you've got to get shit done. Okay, that's all dopamine. It is also, I'm not going to go into it, but it's also involved in movement, like motor ability, uh, and that's in different areas of the brain. So if you're talking about um, neurons that produce dopamine in an area called the substantia nigra, if those neurons start to die, then you get the development of Parkinson's disease. But here we're primarily talking about um, the dopamine production in areas, which you don't even need to remember the name, but we're talking about the ventral tegmental area, the dorsal striatum and the nucleus accumbens. Okay. Don't worry too much about that. It also like this kind of link between the emotional part of the brain and, you know, the prefrontal cortex, which of late I've spoken a lot about. Now, There are two major dopamine receptor types. So remember, a receptor is something that receives and conducts signals to another biological structure, okay? So in this case, 
We're talking about dopamine and dopamine is the messenger and it is acting upon these receptors, the D1 and D2 receptors, okay? Then we've also got something called a dopamine transporter. So what these guys do, they're located on the presynaptic cell. So quickly, just to recap without going too hectic, you've got the synapse, which is the gap between the two cells that are communicating with each other. The presynaptic cell is the cell where the um, neurotransmitters are being released. And the postsynaptic cell is where those neurotransmitters are landing on, on channels on top of that membrane of the postsynaptic. So pre and post, that's what you want to think about, okay? A dopamine transporter is located on the membrane, which is like the outer layer, like the, in the casing of the presynaptic cell. So the cell that originally releases the dopamine, uh, the dopamine gets released, whatever doesn't get, you know, whatever doesn't land on a channel or doesn't get absorbed or whatever and what's floating around that synapse gets quickly pumped back up by these dopamine transporters. The transporters like suck up all the dopamine and pump them back into the original cell where they came from, okay? That's to avoid having excessive amounts of dopamine in the synapse and to avoid excessive activation of those receptors. And when it comes to these um, receptors, Researchers found that if you can block the D1 and the D2 receptors, the incentive for reward or drug-seeking behaviors went down. So it's got to do with the activation on those receptors that is causing this, you know, impulse to seek reward excessively. All addictive drugs, whether legal or illegal, increase the amount of dopamine within that extracellular space, that synapse, the gap between the pre- and postsynaptic neurons, okay? Every single one of them. If you are an addictive drug, if they had a personality, you would be working on that, on increasing the amount of dopamine. There's a few mechanisms where how that can happen. I'll break it down, but that's what's happening, Okay. There's an array of psychotropic drugs that are not addictive and that is because they the mechanism of action is not through creating this excessive amount of dopamine in that in that space. Now, as you can understand, there are drugs out there that are designed for, you know, therapeutic purposes like particular antidepressants and also um, ADHD medication that's going to kind of play around with the levels of dopamine that are present. But those drugs, the particular drugs, like for example, Dexys, um, they are addictive, okay? Especially if they're taken by people that don't need them and especially if they're taken in excess. They can be addictive, of course, because they're working on those on the dopamine release. Okay, separate to that, there are two different kinds of mechanisms that I'm going to be speaking about. There's dopamine-dependent and dopamine independent mechanisms, okay? I was reading this really interesting study that showed that mice who were genetically modified to lack dopamine, just they just have less of a production of dopamine within them, they do not find cocaine rewarding, but they did find morphine rewarding. How does that happen? Well, cocaine works on the mechanism where it is dopamine dependent. It depends on the existing amount of dopamine that's already in the synapse. So cocaine works by blocking that transporter that I was telling you about. So that way you can't pump that, that little transporter that's on the presynaptic cell can't go in and collect all that dopamine and pump it back up into the original cell. It's blocked. It can't do that. So then like it's basically antagonizing that cell and that way you're creating whatever dopamine was released, you're creating that dopamine to stay in that space. Therefore, cocaine is dopamine dependent. Amphetamines, however, work 
from within the cell. The amphetamine, these chemicals enter the cell via the transporter, but once inside the cell, they work on getting the dopamine that's stored within that cell out of the vesicles. Because what happens in the cell is you get these little balls, and they're called like vesicles, and they package neurotransmitters in these balls, and then the balls get dumped out of the neuron, and then they like kind of spill open and land on all the uh, receptors. Anyway, so what what an amphetamine does, the chemical enters through the transporter, and it it encourages, it basically makes those vesicles kind of release the dopamine out of the cell at a more, at a rapid rate. So it's basically um, dopamine independent. It doesn't matter how much dopamine is going on in that extracellular space, it's creating more of a release of dopamine from within the cell. So that's why they're different. And that is why something like a methamphetamine is going to create more of an addiction than something like cocaine or other drugs that work as dopamine dependent drugs. Now, examples of, you know, like for I just mentioned before, um, DEXs, exa- examples of amphetamines are, for example, methamphetamine, ice, all of that, and also DEXs, which people take uh, for ADHD. So it's that's called a dexamphetamine, okay? So the way DEXs work, of course, dopamine. I'll go into it in a bit, but dopamine, of course, increases focus and attention and motivation. And so the way that works is you're increasing that um, release of dopamine. So you can imagine if you don't actually need DEXIs, people that then go and take DEXIs to increase their performance, they're like, oh, I really want to work really hard today. So I'll just take this DEXI that my mate gave me. They take it. They're fucking wired. They're like getting shit done. What, what a DEXI actually does is it increases your willingness to do something. In other words, your motivation or your drive. That's what a DEXI does. That's what having more dopamine in your system does. It increases your willingness to do something. It doesn't increase your cognitive ability, okay? So if you're someone thinking that it's going to be like that limitless drug that you're going to be super smart or whatever, no, can't. that's not what it does. It just makes you more willing to do something. It bumps up your motivation. So if someone with ADHD, it's going to get them more focused, Okay. And it sounds like this miracle thing that everyone should be taking a DEXI now, but no, because then you create this dependency and then when you don't have the DEXI, you actually are in a deficit of what your normal release of dopamine is because we always are releasing dopamine. We just have spikes in the release depending on a stimulus or depending when we're feeling more motivated or something that we're trying to get as a reward, okay? But the dopamine is always there. So if you're then fucking around with the dopamine levels with a chemical substance, like some sort of a drug, you're going to then have like a deficit after immediately after. And that's why a lot of people, you know, get this idea of a, like, it, you know, the come down after taking drugs, that's because you've like fucked around with the levels and your brain's always trying to find that homeostasis. So you're going to feel a lot worse Instead of you, you don't go back to baseline, you actually go below baseline as far as how you're feeling after you take something that, you know, fucks with the levels of your dopamine from a synthetic or a chemical standpoint. A good example of this, we've all experienced this. I'm going to use social media as the example uh, or your text messages or whatever, but social media is probably the best one because it's literally designed to keep us active on the app. What happens is that we always seek a reward, okay? you Whatever you want to call it, a spike in dopamine, a reward, it's this thing that we're seeking. If you are constantly engaging in behaviors where you're trying to get that reward, what's going to happen is that you're then going to feel quite 
flat and then difficult to get excited or you can replace excited for motivated for other things. So that then explains why when in the morning you are scrolling through your Instagram as the first thing you do in the morning, you're setting yourself up to have an unmotivated day. You're already playing around with this reward-seeking behavior and you're going for the reward, going for the reward, bang, 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 without having any rest in between. And then you're getting that, like I said, that residual kind of you, you drop below baseline before you go up. So you actually feel kind of flat. The moment you get off that app, you're thinking, I need a quick reward. So what do you do? You instantly return back to the app or then you go and do some other reward-seeking behavior. So even if you're not an addict, you can understand already how these reward-seeking behaviors already are controlling your life or aspects of your life. And then you've got this kind of cascading effect for the rest of the day where you feel flat, you feel unmotivated, you don't want to do things. That's why when I talk about morning habits, one of the best things you can do is not get on your phone for the first 30 minutes of the day. It makes a difference from a chemical standpoint in your brain. If you want to start feeling more motivated, if you want to call it that, or driven, or you want to feel excited about things, then you want to be reducing this reward-seeking behavior for these quick wins, these quick short wins that are going to give you that feeling of satisfaction in the moment instantly and then it's going to feel like a bit of a drop and you're going to feel flat. There is, I feel like it's like this epidemic around the world where people just feel flat and they really want to feel motivated. Want to know how to feel motivated? Stop going for these quick wins and these quick uh, reward-seeking behaviors. You're going to feel way more motivated because you're going to be, you're not fucking around with your dopamine levels in the brain when you do that, even from a behavioral standpoint, not to mention obviously chemical is so much more intense. Now, this, this is where it gets really interesting and you're going to start to understand why this, what I'm going to tell you plays into chemical addictions and also behavioral things and also your drive and your motivation. Okay. When you start doing something that feels good and that is necessary for you, your survival, your brain is, of course, going to make you feel rewarded. It's going to feel good, okay, because it wants you to do it again. That's survival. Sex, eating, drinking water, um, you know, whatever, laughing, all those things. Then we've got all these other addictions that make us feel good and these things have kind of hijacked that rewards pathway. So it was originally there for survival and then of course it's there for you know pleasure and then it then starts to hijack it and that's where you then have addiction on top of all of that. Now the really interesting thing about dopamine is that you get the release of dopamine more so in anticipation of the reward and it makes sense because if dopamine is a something that makes you feel motivated, that motivation is what's going to get you to seek out the reward. It's going to make you go and do that thing. It's going to make you, you know, if you're anticipating having sex, it's going to make you want to then do certain things so you can have sex. If you're going to anticipate eating something delicious, it's going to make you get off your ass and go to the fridge and grab that thing that's delicious. The, you know, it, the dopamine is in the anticipation. And what happens is that, Yes, you get a release when you get the reward, but your brain starts to create an association to something that's called a conditioned stimulus. A conditioned stimulus is, is something that you have conditioned yourself to associate with the, the reward, okay? So I'm sure you guys have heard of something called Pavlov's dogs, which is this concept, this, this um, psychologist or psychiatrist, Pavlov, 
back in the fucking day, he created this thing where he would ring these bells before he'd feed his dogs and he realised that when the dogs would then hear the bells, which is the conditioned stimulus, the dogs had been conditioned to hear the bell before they get the the fucking food, then the dogs would be drooling. So even if he removed the food from the equation, he'd ring the bell and the dogs would drool, okay? So that's this concept of the conditioned stimulus and that's what happens with us. If you get a ping on your phone, that's your conditioned stimulus telling you you now have something exciting to open up in your app, okay? So you then already feel that that high, you already feel this excitement, that raise in your dopamine levels before you even know what has been said, before you even know who's liked your photo, who's messaged you, all of that. It's it's your more, it's this anticipation, okay? Your body starts to change the release of dopamine and instead of it being just when you're getting the reward, it's more so the anticipation of the reward, therefore making you go out and seek those things. It, it, it increases your motivation. So you can see that dopamine is actually when when used for the correct reasons and naturally, it's fucking fantastic because it is this anticipation of something. So it makes you go and do it. It's that oomph. It's that drive that gets you off your ass taking action. Now, when I say that uh, chemical addictions hijack that pathway, what I mean is that it makes you that, – that motivation and that drive becomes something that's just – out of proportion with everything else. You know, this need for the high of that drug becomes so high and the motivation to get that drug will trump absolutely everything. That's why it makes you lose control. You will literally do anything to get that drug. You will bypass eating to get that drug. So that's what what I mean by it hijacking the system. It actually fucks with the system and the system doesn't work properly because your innate need is to eat food and this will hijack that and it will make you say fuck the food I need the drug I'll starve myself as long as I can get high so that's where you've like cooked the system essentially okay so now that we kind of understand what's going on with dopamine with you know chemical addictions and behavioral why would you want to increase dopamine naturally when you're not chasing a high for example dopamine helps us delay gratification. It helps us set a goal and to see that goal in the future and work towards that goal and like get excited about a goal. It'd be that driving force behind you to get to where you want to go. It gives us the ability to change our behavior for the better if it's going to um, if it's going to represent something positive for our future. It, you know, it makes us put in effort. It makes us resist cravings because we know that there's, you know, a, a, an outcome if we resist the cravings, grit, all of that. So if you, if this is what, this is natural release of dopamine. I'm not talking about obviously drugs, fuck that, but just the natural production of dopamine through healthy ways, which I'll explain in a sec. That's what you get from it. If you are feeling flat, unmotivated, you have low self-esteem, low self-love, you're tired or fatigued, you can't focus, you've got low energy, you can't sleep properly, then all these things could be due to low levels or just not enough or not a healthy cycle of release of dopamine. And then it also almost creates like this vicious cycle, right? Because you feel this way, so then nothing really is exciting you. So then you go for those quick wins, you know, the social media or, you know, whatever it is that's going to give you that – you know, little boost where you feel good in that moment, 
but it's not kind of a sustained release and it's not what's going to make you be feeling good in the long term or motivated towards a long-term goal or anything like that. And then it makes you feel flatter. Like how many times have you woken up thinking, right, tomorrow this is it, or you've gone to bed thinking, right, tomorrow I'm going to have this really motivated day, I'm going to get everything done, and then you end up spending hours on social media or hours – you know, watching Netflix or doing something not at all with what you had set out for yourself to do. And then you go to bed feeling not only that you had got nothing done, but you feel really shit about yourself because you think, why did I not have the control? How did I not do that? How did I not get any of that shit done? That has to do with low levels of dopamine and possibly you contributing without knowing to those low levels by engaging in too many of those quick seek reward seeking behaviors like Perfect example, of course, social media. That is the biggest one. When you're on your phone all the time, that is one of the biggest drainers of this natural, nice release of decent levels of dopamine and feeling motivated throughout the day. Dopamine is also heavily involved in learning. Like I said, dopamine increases your willingness to do something, your motivation, and therefore it increases your interest and your curiosity, okay? So, it's what makes you want to seek new things out. What's what makes you want to learn. The beauty of it is the more you get into a habit or a routine of seeking out new things to learn, to grow, curiosity, being interested in something, then you're going to get into a good pattern and you're going to start getting into a, a healthy release of naturally produced dopamine, okay? These behaviors and these con- connections throughout the brain are going to start enhancing your own natural production of dopamine. But- As you can imagine, if you already have low levels of dopamine and you try and sit down and focus and you're not willing to focus because you don't have the dopamine, you don't have that drive or that push, then you feel really flat. You're not paying attention. You're not retaining any of this information. And then you feel even shitter because you spend all this time and it felt like excessive amounts of effort because you you felt like it was just a, a, a punish to do it and you've retained like a quarter of it instead of all of it that you wanted to retain. Additionally, you're getting distracted left, right and center because you don't have that motivation to stick it out and you're constantly getting pulled or distracted. You will know how it feels when you truly come across something that fucking fascinates you. There can be distractions going on and you don't even hear it because you're super, super interested and you're super... Gossip is a big one. When someone's telling you a juicy piece of gossip, do you hear the background noise? Fuck no, everything goes quiet. You're like, tell me more, okay? The same goes for when you're truly interested in something. Like for me, it's neuroscience, right? Whatever it is, if you're truly, truly interested, it's not that easy to be distracted by it because you're kind of swept up in it in a good way. If that's not happening for you, you've probably got lower levels of dopamine and then you're probably also, it's, it is a catch-22. When you've got low levels of dopamine, you're then more likely to seek out these quick reward-seeking behaviors and then that's going to cause you to have even lower levels of dopamine and it goes on and on and on and on. People that have higher levels of dopamine, like I said, you, you could be also naturally, you know, the way it is, but very much often, can I fucking speak very much often? Very often it is due to the fact that their lifestyle is allowing for there to be more of a release. And a lot of the time you see that when people are really passionate about something, they allow for hours within the day where they can really get submerged in something that they have, that it's like their cause, their purpose, they fucking love it, they're here for it, they're working hard. Even if it's difficult, it doesn't matter. They've got the drive and the motivation. Those people are more likely to then have higher levels of dopamine throughout the day. They're more likely to want to go and exercise. Exercise that increases your natural levels of dopamine you're going to sleep better sleep increases your natural sleep wake cycle where when you wake up you've got better levels of dopamine when you sleep 
you know, it goes down. So it all links together and it is all lifestyle changes that anybody can put into place. So let's talk about now what you can do to start feeling better, what you can do to start increasing these levels of dopamine in your life. I mean, I know I just mentioned a bunch of them, but the first thing you want to do is reduce these impulsive behaviors that leave you feeling bad after you've done them for longer than what you wanted to do. Okay. Everything is in moderation. If you were to check your social media for literally two minutes, you would not feel bad after it. You only feel bad when you've gone for this like seeking reward, seeking reward for this endless thing. And then it's left you feeling flat after that flat feeling is not just because you've wasted time and you're annoyed at yourself, but it's literally a chemical imbalance, if you want to call it, that's actually going on in your brain. So it's twofold. You feel shit about it. You've just wasted all this time and you've got that kind of, um, you know, your lower than baseline amount of dopamine kind of floating around. It's not fun. It doesn't feel great. And then your likelihood of then bouncing up and doing something that's going to make you feel full of purpose is limited, right? So then you're going to go and fuck around for the next hour. So what I would really encourage you to do is Take a look now, write it down or sit and think about it. What are the things that when you do them for too long, you feel shit about yourself? Okay, we've all got them, write them down. Then you're going to see how you can limit those things. And this is where I always talk about putting in a timer and putting in a block. And the number one thing, like I said earlier, do not enter in those apps or do not enter in those behaviors at, for at least the first 30 minutes, ideally hour of your day, ideally the first hour of your day. And if you're saying, I can't do that for the first hour of the day, you have a fucking problem and you of all people need to do that for the first hour of the day, okay? Because if you're thinking that you need your phone to access these things in the first hour of your day, then that shows a dependency and you think that that's what's going to make you happy. You are the number one person that absolutely needs to have that hour off for the first part of the day. Another thing that you can do is start finding kind of replacement activities that you can do instead. So it's almost like you want to go on this, I wouldn't call it a detox because I don't like the idea of like detoxing, but it's almost like you want to go on a uh, like getting rid of things that are going to spike and then drop your dopamine. So if for example, you're somebody that during your lunch break, you always get on your phone and you're, and you're scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. For the next week, I want you to, instead of that, you're going to go and do an activity. If you can go for a walk, you're going to go for a walk. Gym, a swim, whatever the fuck you've got available to you, you're going to do that. If you can make it a physical thing, great. Otherwise, read a book, ideally a pay, like a legitimate physical fucking book so you're not getting any notifications here and there. I don't want you on your, you know, on your tablet devices, your phones, none of that. I want you to completely take it away. You want to calm down the nervous system. At the same time that all this is happening, there's also that kind of constant connectivity with your prefrontal cortex and the limbic system, the emotional part of the brain. That is always heavily involved in regulation of neurotransmitter release and feel-good neurotransmitters. The more you can do to calm yourself down and be just in a nice present state, which is walking outside, going for a swim, reading a book, meditating, all those things start to increase that connectivity. You have more control over your impulses, okay? The, the more you engage in this reward-seeking behavior constantly, the less control you have over your impulses. You're reducing activity in the prefrontal cortex and you're enhancing activity in these rewards pathways, your limbic system, the emotional part of the brain. 
Super important to do that. So number one, identify. Number two, cut out that bullshit in the morning. Stop doing it in the morning. Number three, find alternatives when you are more likely to engage in these behaviors. You're going to swap it out for a week. Do it. You know what? Do it for two weeks. Do it for yourself and ideally like please write it on the Facebook group and let me know how it goes. But do this homework where you're going to replace blocks of time through the day with something else. Go and buy a book that you're interested in and that's your new social media for the next seven days. Don't get me wrong. I'm on social media and I'm on social media often, but I notice a difference. Even day by day, I notice a difference between when what I normally do when I jump on Instagram, I look at the time at the top and I give myself two minutes, literally two minutes. Unless I'm replying to messages and it's like it's work that I give myself two minutes of recreational scrolling. When those two minutes are up, I get off my fucking phone. I literally, I, I exit out of the app and I put my phone down. So it's always timed. I never get it to the point where I'm mindlessly scrolling. That's the last thing you want to be doing and it's very detrimental for your motivation for later on in the day. So what I want you to do is you can still, of course, I'm all for moderation. I'm not, don't take it out of your life. That's pointless because you obviously it's just part of your reality. But what I want you to do is you want to have little blocks in the day where you can access your social media. But every time you're on your social media, you just say, I don't need to be here for longer than X and you give yourself a time limit. And whatever that time limit is, half it. And that's what you're going to do. Okay. Then when you're in times where you've got nothing to do, that's when you don't want to be sitting there and mindlessly scrolling forever. I definitely notice a difference. If I mind, mindlessly scroll, especially earlier in the day, it screws up my ability to be motivated for the rest of the day or to be driven. Okay, So pay attention when you're doing it. If you have to mindlessly scroll, do it at the end of the day or do it after you've done all the major tasks that you want to get done so you can feel fulfilled then, okay, fine, go and do your mindless scrolling. But you want to start creating some parameters and you also want to teach yourself that you do have control, that you can say, I'm going to be on here for two minutes and you honor that and you get off after two minutes. You are capable of doing it. It's just going to be a little bit tricky the first couple of days. I can guarantee you this. If you do this for two weeks where you limit the time, where you don't jump on first thing in the morning, where you are replacing long patches, especially between activities or if you're at work on your lunch break with other things that are not spiking that reward, you know, up and down, up and down, you're going to feel a lot better. You're going to feel happier, more driven, more focused. You're going to want to learn more. You're going to feel more motivated. Okay. So that is that. I hope that helped. There's definitely going to be more things that crop up, you know, in the next few episodes about dopamine. I'm sure like there's no way I could have covered everything and there's just so much that is left unsaid. But I just wanted to give you a bit of an overview on how dopamine works on addictions and hopefully you can kind of see how it all ties in together where you've got, you know, how it works on rewards and addictions but also how it can be super beneficial for other things in your life, okay? So go and do everything I told you to do and – yeah, please let me know how it goes. Jump on the Facebook group and give me feedback. Guys, I love you all so much. Thank you for listening to today's episode. A bit more of a science based episode, which I live for. I love that so much. Uh, that is all for today. Remember, be kind to yourselves. Be kind to your brains. Don't take shit from anyone. And especially, don't take shit from yourself. Danke.